You're going to love this. Just love it. Clowns and Jokers, stuck in the middle middle with you from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, on 91.7 FM KYAQ in Oregon on the beautiful Central Coast, on the Progressive Voices Channel on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation Network. Radio or not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and of course, Radio Sputnik five days a week. This is your broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Glad you could join us. Uh, hope you had a, a lovely uh, Memorial Day weekend. A lot going on today, uh, despite the holiday, uh, including an interesting uh, conversation, a few moments we had up in Santa Barbara over that holiday weekend near the scene of that oil spill, that horrible oil spill, over 100,000 gallons uh, from a pipeline up in Santa Barbara. We happened to be going by it uh, on our way for some... uh, for some weekend travel, and we'll we'll let you know what happened when we tried to get a look at the beach at the site of that spill. We've got some uh, some audio from that uh, encounter with the security guards there in a little bit. Also, record Texas flooding has uh, been going on over the past couple of days. Uh, amazing story. I mean, just horrendous torrential downpours in an area of Texas and Oklahoma that had been suffering from an extreme record drought for the past several years, three, four years. Uh, is this exactly what scientists have been warning us about, these extremes in uh, in weather from, from drought to floods? We will be talking with Andrew Friedman, climate science reporter from Mashable.com. He spells his name correctly, Friedman, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N. He will be joining us to talk about that. Uh, also, by the way, uh, record heat in India. 500 have been killed in just the past few days in India. So, I, you know, I, I seem to always end this, uh, this program saying, good luck, world. I mean it. This is what seems to be going on right now around the world. Uh, also, we'll have an update on the, uh, on the gyrocopter guy, Douglas Hughes, who we had on this show a few weeks ago. Just days after he had landed his gyrocopter, the uh, the uh, former postal worker, former current. Is he still? Yeah, I think he's still a current uh, postal worker. Isn't I he? think he's retired. Is he retired? Retired uh, postal worker. He had a gyrocopter with the, uh, the, the postal logo, the USPS logo on the back of the gyrocopter. He was bringing a message to the Capitol to 435, I guess, 535 members of Congress concerning 
uh, Citizens United, campaign election uh, uh, spending, uh, the need for reform, and of course, the focus was on the fact that, oh, look, a guy in a gyrocopter landed uh, outside the, uh, the Capitol, on the west lawn of the Capitol. It's a security threat. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to punish this guy? Well, we've got an update in that story we will get to in a little bit. But first, uh, before we get to all that disaster and tragedy, uh, some good news over the weekend out of Ireland, where citizens have voted in a landslide to legalize gay marriage. Electoral officials announced on Saturday what actually caught my eye about this was that uh, when the first headlines came out uh, from AP, it was Ireland approves gay marriage. Both sides agree. And, of course, the first thing that occurred to me was, yeah, well, of course, both sides agree because they publicly hand count their ballots in front of everyone. And it's hard for anybody to, uh, you know, to, to say the election was stolen because they saw the counting happen, which is something I've been calling for in this country for quite a while. And, and don't they vote on paper? That's how they're able to hand count? Hand marked paper ballots that are then counted by human beings in front of other human beings. And then everybody agrees. And then, well, therefore they must because they've seen it, uh, you know, counted in front of their very eyes. They did a few years ago, um, you know, make the mistake of trying out electronic voting. Uh, but they were smart enough to find out that, oh, electronic voting can be hacked. It can be uh, manipulated. It can fail without anybody noticing. And guess what they did? They got rid of all of their electronic voting machines. And yet their civilization did not collapse. And they continue to use those same. Uh, we continue to use those same voting machines. Our civilization may be collapsing, but in <laughs> Ireland, they're doing fine. Uh, the referendum last Friday saw 62 percent of Irish voters say yes to changing the nation's constitution to define marriage as a union between two people, regardless of their sex. This is uh, great. Prime Minister Ed Enda Kenny uh, proclaimed as he welcomed the outcome with today's vote. We have disclosed who we are, a generous, compassionate, bold and joyful people, he said. Deputy Prime Minister Joan Burton declared the victory, quote, a magical moving moment when the world's beating heart is in Ireland. It is the first country to approve gay marriage in a popular national vote. Nineteen other countries, including most U.S. states, have legalized the practice through their legislatures and courts. More than 1.2 million Irish voters backed the yes side to less than 750,000 voting no. Only one of Ireland's 43 constituencies recorded a narrow no majority. Roscommon South Leitrim. In the Boggy Midlands. Well, yes, of course. Of course. Never mind the, the Boggy, boggy Midlands. <laughs> yes, right. Uh, analysts credit the uh, yes vote with adeptly employing social media to mobilize young first-time voters, tens of thousands of whom voted for the first time on Friday. Pay attention, Americans. Yes, give young people something to vote for, and they will show up and vote. Catholic church leaders and gay rights advocates said the result signaled a social revolution in Ireland, where only a few decades ago the authority of Catholic teaching was reinforced by voters who massively backed bans on abortion and divorce in the 1980s. Voters legalized divorce uh, back then in, in 1995 by a razor-thin margin. 
Um, and But now, by a firm majority, have dismissed the Catholic Church's repeated calls to reject gay marriage. Now, I'm actually of two minds uh, on this. I think it's obviously great news that the country of uh, Ireland has uh, has done the right thing here. But I don't like the idea of voting on civil rights, to be frank. Uh, you know, had had they voted uh, against this measure, then everyone would have said, well, they voted against it. So that's it. There's nothing more we can do. Uh, the people have spoken. Well, no. Uh, when it comes to rights, I don't think it should be up to the ballot box. I think rights are rights. I don't think we should you know, vote on whether we should have slavery or not. Nonetheless, uh, Fianna Fail leader, uh, that's a political party, I think that's how you say it, uh, M- Michael Mart- Mar- Martin, a Cork politician whose opposition party is traditionally closest to the Catholic Church, said he couldn't, in good conscience, back the anti-gay marriage side. Every political party v- was supporting this new uh, constitutional amendment, even the so-called conservative parties. Michael Martin said it's simply wrong in the 21st century to oppress people because of their sexuality. So good news, very good news out of Ireland. And uh, I would say, and I'll just uh, say this for the moment, uh, I believe there is a progressive tide happening, not just in this country, but in uh, in the world as a whole. And I know things seem very bad in a lot of places right now, but I am of the mind that we are on the cusp of... uh, of a new progressive age, no matter how dark and dank things seem at the moment. Uh, I, I think this is, uh, in some respects, uh, the last uh, embers of a dying generation trying to cling to what it was they had before as we move into a better day. But we will see. We will see who's right about that. Okay. Um, in Texas, uh, meanwhile, uh, just uh, very, very bad news. What's going on down there? A tornado raged through a city on the U.S.-Mexico border Monday, destroying homes, flinging cars like matchsticks, and ripping an infant away from its mother. At least 13 people were killed, according to authorities, uh, says AP. This was late on Monday, this report Things have gotten worse still. In Texas, 12 people were reported missing after the vacation home they were staying in was swept away by rushing floodwaters in a small town popular with tourists. In the U.S., a line of storms stretching from the Gulf of Mexico to the Great Lakes dumped record rainfall on parts of the plains and Midwest, spawning tornadoes, causing major flooding that forced at least 2,000 Texans from their home. The storms were blamed for at least six deaths over the weekend, and I believe that uh, that count has risen since then. Uh, with uh, at, the point, at that point, it was three in Oklahoma and three in Texas. Uh, a man's body was dis- recovered from a flooded area along the Blanco River, which rose 26 feet in an hour and created huge piles of debris. Texas Governor Greg Abbott added 24 counties to his disaster declaration, bringing the total to 37, mostly in the eastern half of the state. About 1,000 homes were damaged throughout Hayes County. Five police cars were washed away. The firehouse was flooded. Uh, rivers swelled so quickly that the whole commun- uh, community that whole communities woke up on Sunday surrounded by water. The Blanco crested above 40 feet. That's more than triple. More than triple its flood stage of 13 feet. So when it's at 13 feet, that's a flood. 
and it went to 40 feet. The river swamped Interstate 35, forced parts of the busy north-south highway to close. Rescuers used pontoon boats and helicopters to pull people out. Hundreds of trees along the Blanco were uprooted or snapped. They collected in piles of debris that soared 20 feet high. Uh, The situation has only gotten worse since the weekend, and this sounds a hell of a lot like what uh, scientists have been warning about for a very long time. Uh, extremes of both drought and floods, and this is an area that had been uh, stricken by a a years-long drought. Uh, Joining us now to talk about all of this, to talk about what's going on uh, on the ground, uh, I guess, in Texas, and how all of this ties to to climate change is Andrew Friedman, the science editor at Mashable.com. Prior to that, Andrew was uh, a senior science writer for Climate Central, and has worked as a reporter for Congressional Quarterly. His writing has also appeared uh, online at the Weather Channel and at the Washington Post, where he wrote a weekly climate science column for the Capital Weather Gang blog. He holds a master's degree in climate and society from Columbia and a master's in law and diplomacy from the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Andrew Friedman, welcome, sir, to the broadcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, okay. I, I believe you had at Mashable.com some updated numbers at this hour on uh, the, the the missing and the fatalities in Texas and now in the Houston area. What, what what do you have as far as the latest in that regard? You know, it's it's a relatively moving target. Mm-hmm. Um, the authorities in, in Hayes County, Texas, uh, abruptly increased the number of missing uh, from 12, that family or two families yeah. from vacation homes that were swept away, as well as other homes that are no longer there, but they weren't sure whether these people were swept away or whether they were actually staying elsewhere over the long weekend. So they upda- updated the missing number to 30 from 12, uh, and the number of deaths uh, from what our count is, is about 11. Mm. Uh, that's over several days and across two states, so across Oklahoma and Texas, and multiple cities in Texas. Uh, you write, Andrew Friedman, that the Sugarland, Texas, uh, picked up 11 inches of rain. 11 inches of rain in under 24 hours, while other locations in the Houston area saw between 5 and 10 inches of rain. Uh these are record numbers, right? This is not something that happens every few years in, in Texas and Oklahoma, is it? Not quite. I mean, the the records are falling in terms of wettest month on record. So wettest month of any month mm-hmm. in the calendar year on record for cities like Oklahoma City, uh, places uh, like Wichita Falls, Texas, which was just in, you know, both of those places were just in this horrible multi-year drought. Right. Uh, getting 11 inches of rain in under 24 hours is unusual. Um, the exact exact statistics on whether that's a 500-year rainstorm or 1,000-year rainstorm are a little bit tough to come by for Texas mm-hmm. for technical reasons. The Weather Service is updating some of those statistics. Um but it, it's clearly not an everyday event. Uh, you know, what happened was those thunderstorms that were moving through, that moved through Austin and San Antonio and some other areas, just screeched to a halt 
when they hit the Houston area. And just watching the radar loop, it was like watching a series of trains rumbling down a train track, just going over the same exact area again and again, which forced the Weather Service to issue a flash flood emergency, which is the highest level of warning that they very rarely do. Um, They had never done that in Oklahoma City before. They did that uh, about a week ago. Um, and it's quite rare for Houston. So this was a a sort of a a quickly moving storm or a regular moving storm, and then it suddenly stopped over Texas and and didn't continue to move, and that's why it dumped all of this water. Is is there a reason why the storm would would suddenly stop? Is that a normal occurrence? Well, I think you can look at things more broadly than that. Um, The weather pattern across North America right now, mm-hmm. and this has been the case for a couple of weeks, um, has featured really a couple of stuck patterns. We've had this trough or dip in the jet stream coming down over the southwest U.S. into Texas, drawing up this Gulf moisture supply and dumping rains week after week on Oklahoma and Texas and Arkansas and other locations. So you have individual storms in that parade of storms coming down through that jet stream. Uh, This was one of those individual events that was particularly Mm slow-moving, but it's like the the broader pattern over hundreds to thousands of miles is also moving very slowly. Um, This is the same sort of slow-moving setup that that led to the repeat blizzards in Boston last winter. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a different manifestation of that. And there are climate scientists who are looking into the possibility that these stuck patterns are becoming more common and more more stuck, if you will. <laughs> well, um, that's not a generally widely accepted view in the climate science community as of yet. It's more anecdotal evidence um, and people's hunches, um, but usually scientists, when they have hunches, there's, there's a good reason for them. Um, but uh, right now, we just don't quite know. What we know is that trends over the past 30 years show that extreme precipitation events, both drought and uh, heavy rain, heavy snow, are becoming more intense, more frequent across different parts of the U.S. and different parts of the world. Texas and Oklahoma has seen its share of drought and flooding over the past couple decades. Those extreme trends are most pronounced, though, in the Northeast and the Midwest. So I'd be more confident to to link it to climate change a little bit more if if it occurred there. However, the the pattern is, is pretty consistent throughout the U.S. and makes physical sense because as you warm the atmosphere as you warm the oceans, and the oceans are record warm worldwide right now, Mm -hmm. Uh, you end up with more moisture in the air, and you're kind of just adding fuel to the fire. So, you know, when a storm occurs, it's a little bit more extreme than it otherwise would be. It, it is those those larger climate patterns that, that I'm sort of interested in here, because we're out in California, we're out in Los Angeles, and we've been told now for the past boy, I don't know, two or three years as we're in this record drought out here that it has seems to have something to do with another, what I think you used the word, blocking pattern uh, in the jet stream, uh, a huge ridge of warm air off the, off the coast that is basically keeping the normal weather patterns from moving through, from, uh, you know, keeping our rain from getting down, you know, into Southern California or California as a whole. 
And so that's what I'm trying to understand. And I guess you're saying that is something that scientists are now looking at when it comes to storms, insane storms like what we're seeing in Texas right now to see if that is part of that larger picture that is the footprint of climate change. Exactly. And the California drought has been connected to exactly uh, different blocking patterns, mm-hmm. but blocking patterns over the northern Pacific and this huge blob of unusually warm water in the Gulf of Alaska, which has caused kind of like a, a reroute of traffic in the atmosphere uh, for months and months and months. And that has, you know, led to a very, very serious situation in California. Um, but the weather pattern changed somewhat, and you just get a different type of blocking pattern right now. And we are seeing the results, you know, with these extreme localized manifestations of that in uh, Texas and Oklahoma. And connecting an individual thunderstorm or an individual, this event mm-hmm. was, if you want to get like super weather geeky about it, this this event was what's known as a mesoscale convective system, which is like a large group of organized thunderstorms that stretched across three states at one point um, was just the tops of these storms were at about 60,000 feet into the atmosphere, just have enormous, incredible power. Um, and meteorologists uh, study these. And, you know, there's people who specialize in forecasting these and their evolution. But the possibility that, you know, broader long-term warming is giving systems like this a little bit more juice to work with, which gives you, you know, a half inch or another inch of, of water in a certain amount of time, you know, that makes a big difference for people living along these rivers that rose yeah. at such astonishingly rapid rates. Yeah. Um, you know, the the 26-foot or 27-foot increase of uh, the Blanco River uh, that, that proved deadly, even though, you know, the Weather Service had warned of flooding in that area. And it's uh, it's still rising, as I understand it, in some areas, particularly in in Houston now, if I understand this correctly. Um, So I I know that the situation has changed quickly and I I don't want to sort of make it too political here. But are you getting any indications uh, out of Texas, out of, uh, you know, Texas Republicans, uh, uh, actually officials of any type? I know that Greg, uh, uh, Greg Abbott, the governor down there has declared uh, states of emergency. Um, but are you getting any sense that anyone in Texas is starting to figure this out? Gosh, we went from a, a record long, a record extreme drought now into record flooding. Maybe there's something more at work here than uh, than just random weather. And by the way, I don't mean uh, something more at work like uh, a higher power. I'm talking about the climate. Are you getting any sense that uh, officials in Texas, where they are notorious climate deniers, may be starting to understand something else is now going on, or is it too early for that? You know, I, I don't get the sense that any officials are dealing with that at this point. I think everybody's just trying to find the people who are missing mm-hmm. and cope with what's been lost. Um, it's a very near-term uh, uh, story right now. Right. I think that There are many scientists in Texas who are doing an excellent job communicating the science of climate change and what it may mean for Texas to Texas politicians of all stripes. Um, 
whether they take that in and understand it and choose to, you know, act on that is a totally different story. I think it's very interesting, you know, if you talk to a Texas farmer or even somebody who's an oil producer or a uh, wind energy producer, which Texas is, I think, number one in wind yeah. right now uh, uh-huh. across the country, um, they'll have a different story to tell you about climate and climate change than you know a state legislator in Austin, for example, um, because they're feeling this, what I've called in the past, um, recently, is they're feeling this weather whiplash. Mm. When you go from one extreme to the other in almost no time at all, uh, it challenges their ability to plan, it challenges their ability to produce energy, to do things reliably, and to make money. And even if they're people who are politically disinclined to jump on the global warming bandwagon because they might see it as like a big government type solution or a liberal solution, um, you know, really what I try to tell people is what we do about it is a political issue. You know, what, mm-hmm. what we do to combat the problem is a political issue. Whether or not the problem exists and how severe it is, is a scientific issue. And I think that through different programs and through their experience, A lot of the people in Texas are finding, okay, well, they're aware that something is going on. They're accepting that maybe, you know, some of this is man-made global warming, but they may have different views on what should be done about it or what might be best for them. Um, And that's perfectly reasonable. Um, What's not reasonable and not quite happening in Texas but is happening elsewhere in Florida and North Carolina and other places is when you have people in government who are refusing to utter the words climate change and prohibiting others from doing so and mandating that state legislators only consider, you know, certain rates of sea level rise that scientists say are not the most likely ones. Um, So that's a whole different story. Well, and uh, you say what we do about it is political. I would also add what we don't do about it is also political. And that that seems to be where we're bogged down here. Uh, Andrew Friedman, I got uh, just a minute or so left here. The um, uh, already seeing signs on Twitter that uh, folks are saying, oh, this is nothing. This is uh, just El Nino. It's an El Nino pattern, which is essentially the warming of the uh, Pacific Oceans. It's it's largely cyclical every few years. Uh, Nothing to worry about. This is just the effect of El Nino. Is there uh, is it is it too early to know how this is tied to El, an El Nino versus uh, climate change in general, or are we just too early still? It's too early to parse those two things out mm-hmm. specifically. However, I don't think that any good climate scientist at this point would say it's unrelated to either one. Um, there is evidence, and I've already shown some charts in some of Mashable's coverage, there is evidence that ties some of what's going on with the El Nino and the tropical Pacific mm-hmm. to uh, the wet weather pattern in the south central states. And we know there is a correlation there at certain times of year. Um, this El Nino event is coming on really strong, and it's coming on at a time of year when normally El Ninos are not strengthening as quickly. Right. 
Um, so scientists are a little bit puzzled by this one and, and playing catch up a if, little bit. If this had so, been a normal El Nino year, it would be starting to subside ar- ar- around now. It would be starting well, to go away, right? It, well, usually El Nino reaches a peak um, in the fall and the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one is already getting to moderate levels, and people are trying to figure out exactly how strong it'll get. Um, it's pretty difficult to predict the strength um, for a variety of reasons um, in the month of May. Yeah. Uh, once we get towards June and July, scientists will have a little bit more confidence, and that'll actually be something you're very concerned with because that'll potentially affect the outcome of the California drought in terms of the next rainy season. Yeah. Um, but if, if you look at El Nino and climate change, these are both factors that are tilting the odds in favor of a certain outcome in the southern plains in Texas and in Oklahoma right now. Um, You know, El Nino is a more direct instigator. Climate change is a little bit more of um, an accomplice that sort of is hiding within sight, but sort of in the background. And we're going to have to wait for more studies to come out that, that analyze this particular event and whether or not climate change made it more likely. But... You know, considering other evidence and other similar events, it's it's, uh, it's suspicious. It's suspicious, to say the least. I mean, our weather, at least out here, has been different than I've seen it in the 15 or 20 years I've been out in California. And over the past two or three years, it, it, just, it seems like everything is different now uh, when it comes to uh, the weather. And I don't know how much of that is related to climate. And I don't know how much uh, people are feeling that elsewhere. But um, Andrew Friedman... Uh, one last thought here. Uh, Russell Gold, an energy reporter at the Wall Street Journal, tweeted today, uh, when ex-governor Rick Perry led Texas in a rain prayer a few years ago amidst their uh, horrible drought, uh, Gold says he should have been more specific, not all at once. And that's what it's all seems to be coming down at, at once uh, in Texas. So. Uh, of course, we're, we're hoping for the best for, uh, for them. And uh, Andrew Friedman, uh, the, the article you have and the pictures you've uh, included with it over at Mashable.com are pretty amazing. So th- thanks for your coverage there. We're going to be keeping an eye on that as things move forward. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Andrew. Okay, well, speaking of the uh, cost of burning fossil fuels, we're going to take a quick break here and come back with... Uh, What happened when we went by the Santa Barbara oil spill over the holiday weekend, our encounter with security there, and an update on the gyrocopter guy and much more straight ahead on your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. They didn't exactly say in the name of love, but they did ask us to stop. (laughs) Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com with you here. Yeah, so we had had some travel planned for over the holiday weekend, and it happened, as uh, luck would have it, to take us right past 
Uh, the uh, what Refugio State Beach is that how you say? It yes, is? Refugio State Beach. That's of course Desi Doyen, our producer and my co-host on the Green News Report. So she is the uh, expert on all things green. Uh, is it ref- <laughs> Refugio, Refugio. It's Refugio. Refugio? You'll hear it all kind. They'll all right. they'll say different things depending on where you're from. But it's, it's it's everybody's calling it Refugio. So we'll go with that. Or we could just call it Oil Spill Beach because that is where more than a hundred thousand. Gallons of oil spilled thanks to a broken pipeline uh, about a week ago up near right near Santa Barbara. Beautiful part of the country. Just gorgeous. And we were actually heading out, uh, not going there on purpose. We were heading somewhere else. And we realized, oh, we're going right past uh, right past Refugio State Beach. Refugio. Okay. Refugio <laughs> State Beach. Uh, and so we thought, well, let's let's uh, stop down there and see how the cleanup is coming of this this pipeline spilled. Now, this uh, company that owns the pipeline, Plains All American. Wh- what is it with these fossil fuel companies, by the way, Desi? And and these names, Plains All American. These patriotic, patriotic names. Patriotic. Yeah. What was the the one up in uh, that that uh, chemical spill? Uh, Freedom. Freedom. Indus- remember? Yes. Freedom Industries. The chemical industry. Yeah. The chemical spill into the Dan River in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Yes. Uh, yeah, and they're all like, "Oh, we're American. Freedom, American." Anyway, Plains All-American. Apparently, it is the only pipeline in Santa Barbara County that is not under control of the county because had it been under control of the county, it would have had to have an automatic shutoff valve installed. But they argued this company, Plains All-American, argued that, no, no, because this is a cross-state, intrastate pipeline, it should come under federal uh, regulations, which are lower. Right. Than Santa Barbara. Minimum standards. Uh, minimum standards. They, it doesn't require that there be an automatic shutoff valve. That's right. The and they line. sued in order to be able to avoid having that requirement. And we now see the fruits of their lawsuit. Because Santa Barbara was trying to uh, require them to have automatic shutoff valves. Yeah. So this is the only one. And, of course, it broke. And spilled 100,000 gallons uh, of, of crude uh, wildlife, uh, fish, pelicans now uh, being killed, oiled, and so forth. So we we passed this area up in Santa Barbara, and we thought, well, let's let's go check it out, and um, went over to Refugio State Beach, and uh, immediately now you got to know if you live out here in California, in Southern California, the uh, the one the PCH. The 101 goes all the way up the coast. The uh, beach is right there. You can get out pretty much anywhere you want for uh, hundreds of miles, really, up the beach and and go enjoy the beach. It's a public space. Uh, We pulled into this area over at Refugio State Beach to try to uh, check out the oil spill. You could see the, the boats out there, the skimmers out there. And uh, there was a guard shack set up where where there would normally be a, a parking, a, a ranger, a county or a, a state ranger, county ranger. It'd be there. a state beach, so it would be a state ranger. Right, state beach, state ranger. Nice guy, nice kid, young kid there uh, at the guard shack uh, leading into the parking area there. So that guy was there, and then there was maybe half a dozen or more people, private security in yellow uh, windbreakers. It reminded me of uh, what we saw during the BP spill. Remember where they had all of this private security in there that had taken over the public lands, the public beach. And so this one guy was there. He was a nice guy. 
but the security people, man, they were all over him. They were all over us when we pulled in and we uh, asked him, hey, can can we go in? We'd like to get some photographs, report on this. We're, we're here uh, from the media. Here was uh, the conversation I had with this with with the ranger before the security guy uh, had stepped in. Are they, uh, is the beach still open? No, it's not. The beaches are closed? I had seen that there was people out here working on the beach, cleaning uh, residents, coming out and helping. No, not too much. They started a couple groups on CaliforniaVolunteer.org. To come out and help? And do they just get there through other access points to the beach, basically? No, they have to go through the, the groups that are here. To even access the beach? Because, you know, crude oil's a dangerous thing. They don't want right. people just coming out willy-nilly and flip-flops. Understood. We were hoping to come back to take photographs. Who would we talk to about that? All right, so you need a press pass. Pass from whom? From the city of Santa Barbara. So you need a, a press pass. Now, it turned out it wasn't the city of Santa Barbara. It was the Santa Barbara County Emergency Management that apparently you had to go through, or one had to go through. We were not able to to do that because we would have had to go back to Santa Barbara, get that pass. Uh, it was already late in the day and we had to move on. So we were kept from going down there at all to the public beach, to the public area. He was, you know, a nice guy, but he had this look. Did you notice a look in his eye, Des? Could you could you see the look? He, was... he looked nervous is what I would say. He looked like he was very nice, like he was very encouraging, and he was also nervous, <laughs> seemed like. Uh, he did. Like he was being very careful about what he was saying. Uh, he was just this side of, you know, blinking SOS to me uh, in Morse code. But it seemed like he was trying to say something, but he couldn't say something because these private security guards, whoever they were, wherever they were from in their yellow jackets, they were all over like crazy. And they were also very nice, but they made sure nobody entered that area. Uh, here was uh, a, a moment or two uh, with, with the private security guard coming over to, let's say, help us out. Are you guys photographers or what? Media, yeah. Well, we do radio news, yeah. so forth. Yeah. Yeah. You got to have your proper media, and then you got to get a pass from them. From Santa Barbara, to even get access to the. Nobody's allowed down on the beach itself, even the press. Because we've had media here for the last two days. Right. That's quarantine because of the hazard, and we have oil that's still in the rocks. You go down, it gets on your shoes, and you track it back up. Then we have to clean that area. So that increased the cost of the operation. So security, private security has taken over this beach yeah. and uh, this public beach. And, I, you know, I, I, you know, normally when I've gone to, uh, to some uh, sort of event, some news event, you know, simply just identifying myself as being with the media is usually enough to get in. Uh, there's not really any real, you know, people talk about press credentials uh, you know, there, there's no magic pass that you have that gets you into uh, some particular area unless it's an area that's a private event or being strictly controlled by someone. And the fact that we would have had to go back about uh, 20 miles. Yeah, about 20 miles back. And this was uh, I think it was about six or seven o'clock at night when right. we were there. The sun was about to go down, go back, find someone, get a pass to come. Now, I suppose we could have found somewhere else. To access the beach uh, some miles away and then sort of walked down unless they had it guarded uh, for miles. We don't know because now it, the, the oil has drifted, at least as of the weekend, had drifted about nine miles 
uh, from where they originally said, oh, it's it's all contained, nothing to worry about, just in this four-mile area of beach. That had expanded to nine at the same time that Plains All-American had originally reported it was only 20,000 gallons, but then that increased fivefold to 100,000 gallons. And, uh, well, then we asked this ranger, the ranger who, who wasn't uh, blinking, uh, SOS, please help me send help uh, to, to me in Morse code, but, but damn near. Uh, he, he said that uh, he's been told that the spill has, uh, has been contained, at least in that area. We have uh, nothing to worry about. Has there been a lot of people coming through here? Uh, yes. A lot of uh, press and workers. How's the uh, cleanup going? That's the security it's guy. It's actually going really, really well down here. Down here, you feel like it's contained. I mean, they, they, you said they stopped it. You feel that they've stopped the drift. They've told us it's pretty much contained. Okay. Do you do you do you believe them? Uh, I hope so. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's been so contained that they've shut down the beaches further north, the uh, Goleta Beach and Carpinteria Beach. So that's how contained this oil spill apparently is. But you wouldn't know that unless you have a press pass and you get access and you're allowed access to find out about it. Now, I have been watching and following along with the press conferences, and they have been uh, trying to be very for very upfront about whether they're using dispersants. They say they haven't used them so far. Well, you're talking about dispersants. This is during the BP oil spill. Uh, what was that called? Correct. Cor- Cor- Corexit, yes. Corexit. Corexit. It's a chemical dispersant. It's supposed to break down the oil and make it less visible to see, but there are considerable questions and a lot of studies that indicate that Corexit is is probably just as toxic to marine animals as the oil itself. As the oil itself? So there are some suggestions about that, but it's hard to get studies done on that, and so it takes time to do that as well. And when they add this dispersant to these oil spills, uh, they, they just basically go out there and pour this mystery crap into the water and it's supposed to disperse the the oil yeah, i think it, it make it, it as i understand it you know they spray it on and it and it mixes with it with the oil and breaks it down and helps it break down faster but you know you're spraying a chemical into an ecological system and that chemical doesn't just magically disappear no it it doesn't magically disappear and it was even there because we're talking about a week i think it was a, a, about a week or so after the spill had happened when we when we uh, drove by it there and you could see it from the highway there was the first sign the water looked really really weird in that one area right before we got to refugio uh, state beach and were denied uh, access and then the most striking thing was i think after we pulled away and got back on the highway and started heading up north and over powering smell yes and this was on the highway as we were driving i think with the windows closed almost a week after the spill an overpowering smell now mind you this is the the beach and you know anybody who goes to the beach knows you know you got wind all the time it's very windy and so forth you would think that smell by now would have dissipated and even more so you would think that anyone working on the beach would have respirators on mm. because if we could smell it from highway from from the 101 freeway which is you know several hundred feet Yards, away yeah. from the beach then you know if we can smell it from there with the windows closed driving past, driving past. then you can imagine what the workers are being exposed to and yet the uh, Santa Barbara County and Pipeline, uh, the, the Plains All-American, the Pipeline Company, have both said that they did not determine that the air quality required the use of respirators. 
So that's an unusual question, and I know it's being followed up on by uh, mm-hmm. by local reporters to find out why aren't they using respirators if the smell is so strong. But right now they say it's not necessary. Well, uh, maybe it's not toxic. I don't know, but it stunk. I mean, it really stunk bad. And that was, like you say, uh, while we were driving, you know, 55 60 miles an hour along that uh, along that highway a week later it stank so uh not happy times in santa barbara and particularly for the people of santa barbara who still remember that 1969 oil spill which was much 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 worse by all accounts but um this stuff stays around for a long time i remember uh some years ago we were down on uh, on that beach uh along that same area there and I, we were just had the afternoon we were lying on the beach and i got up and i had all of this sticky gunk remember this on my shorts uh from the from the beach oil oil balls tar balls that were washed up onto the beach now i remember at the time desi you told me that that's natural that areas well, like that just kick up these oil tar balls? There are such things as natural oil seeps, and that was one of the issues with the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, that there are natural oil seeps, where just hydrocarbons naturally come out of the ground uh, at the sea floor. And for a long time, BP was trying to make it sound like, hey, a lot of this is probably just natural. You have to distinguish between whether it's our oil or natural oil. And it's a similar situation, I believe, happening off of the Santa Barbara coastline. But it's impossible to know, right? It's impossible to know what was... That's not true. You can actually detect the chemical signature of a specific type of oil. Yeah. So depending on where it comes from, it can have a specific chemical signature. So we could even do testing on it and find out, is it a natural oil sleep or does it come from one of the 13 oil platforms located just offshore the coast of California? So when I say impossible to know, I mean impossible to know for a guy who's sitting out on the oh, beach yeah. enjoying the afternoon and uh, suddenly gets this tar, sticky oil crap all over him, and it was all over, you know, various rocks and so forth, without doing a a chemical test. A chemical test. Yes, to know handy where this, pocket chemical test. Yeah, if you don't have that. Is it from a natural seep, or is it left over from this, you know, this 1969 horrible spill, or from this spill that has now taken place, or from a more recent one, just from the offshore drilling that's going on that was grandfathered in after the big Bar- Santa Barbara oil spill in 1969. Right. Those offshore platforms are still drilling and are still there. And do they leak? Sure. Just of course. You know, it's just, you know, every every day there it's a messy it's a messy business. And, well, it's a messy business. It's going to be a messy business on that uh, Refugio Beach uh, in that whole area for a while because I don't know how you clean this up. I don't know. I mean, you know, for good, how you keep it from washing up ashore for years on end. Anyway. Uh, that was our uh, small but interesting uh, uh, experience over the weekend uh, uh, with the Plains All-American Company and their security guards who have taken over your private beaches. Your public beaches. Your, I'm sorry, you're right. Your public beaches because uh, they want that oil. And uh, and God forbid we should use, you know, solar wind power instead. We got to get all of that uh, delicious, juicy oil that we can. And by the way, none of that automatic shut off valve stuff for us. That would cost too much money. And hey, these these pipelines, they, they rarely leak. So why bother? And it, by the way, it is true. They don't break all that often. Yeah. But when they do. It's a disaster. Yeah, statistically so. speaking, it is the safest way to move this extremely damaging substance. But like nuclear war, not like nu- nuclear energy, when accidents happen, they are high impact events. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break and come back with an update in the story of uh, Douglas Hughes, otherwise known as the gyrocopter guy. We've had him on this show uh, after he landed at the uh, state capitol to send an important message. Nation's capital. What did I say? State capital. I got to get words right today. <laughs> uh, he, he landed at the nation's capital to send an important message, uh, but I don't think the message has been received, at least not the right message. Quick break, and we'll come back with more broadcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Hi, this is U.S. Postal Worker Doug Hughes. I'm the guy who flew the gyrocopter onto the lawn of the U.S. Capitol building to bring attention to the need for campaign finance reform. And you're listening to the broadcast. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yeah, Doug Hughes might have had better luck had he sent his message in a bottle to the nation's capital. Uh, he is, of course, the Florida man who piloted a gyrocopter through miles of America's most restricted airspace before landing at the U.S. Capitol in, uh, in April, as ABC reports. He is now facing charges that carry up to nine and a half years in prison. Of course, they take a while in this story before they even explain why it is that Doug Hughes was flying his gyrocopter into the uh, nation's uh, onto the lawn of the U.S. Capitol, and it was to send a message about election reform. We had Doug Hughes on the broadcast in late April to talk about that, since the media wanted to talk about the security issues. And uh, here's a clip of what he told me back in late April about why he uh, why he did it. The message was for the American people, mm -hmm. okay? And most voters feel at a gut level that Congress isn't working for them, and most voters know that it has to do with money. What I wanted to inform the American public of is the fact that there are solutions to the problem, and these are problems that Congress doesn't want to talk about. They don't want us talking about it. Um, the media, they don't want us talking about solutions. It's an orgy of spending, and, and they are banking on having that money. The networks are licking their chops, expecting to each of them picking up a few hundred million dollars in revenue. Mm -hmm. And if you address the problem of corruption, it's going to lead you to campaign finance reform, and they're absolutely petrified that the amount of money will go down. So it's a taboo subject. It is a taboo subject. That was Douglas Hughes in late April on this uh, on this broadcast talking about why he flew his gyrocopter into the uh, onto the lawn of the U.S. Capitol, trying to deliver a message to uh, to the to the folks there, 535 members of Congress to whom he had hoped to deliver a letter as a postal worker himself and you heard his reference to the media that was in response to our uh, well a question i had asked him about the fact that you know the media they don't want to report on uh, on citizens united and on campaign finance because as a lot of people don't understand it it is the media who benefits the most really 
from uh, all of this obscene spending in our elections. They get the money, ultimately, for, uh, for campaign ads on television, on radio, and so forth. So they don't have a big interest in exposing the problem of, uh, of, of money in elections because it's only going to hurt them if we ever have you know properly publicly financed elections. In any event, Doug Hughes uh, has now been indicted on six charges— as I said, if, uh, the uh, charges carry up to nine and a half years in prison. The charges that Hughes now face include two felonies operating as an airman without an airman's certificate and violating aircraft registration requirements. Those charges carry a maximum of three years in prison. He is also facing three misdemeanor offenses of violating national defense airspace, each carrying a maximum of one year in prison. He also, uh, Hughes, a 61-year-old, faces a misdemeanor charge of operating a vehicle falsely labeled as a uh, as a postal carrier, which is something I had asked him about that. Was that an official, because uh, he's got the uh, USPS logo on the back of his gyrocopter, was that an official, an officially sanctioned post office vehicle? He said that no, it was not, but that he paid, uh, he purchased, he, he told me anyway, that he purchased that logo off the internet. Now I you find that quite, the, kind of disturbing. Why that is that? You can buy that on the internet, and well, then you can get logo. charged for it too. That, well, that you can get charged for it, and then you can, I guess, get. Uh, uh, you mean charges uh, for using it? Then right. it's a fashion. Well, I guess you can't misrepresent yourself. So I guess I understand that. That I guess is the least of his problems. The tail section of Hughes's gyrocopter reports ABC carried a postal service logo that carries that carries. Uh, that charge carries a statutory maximum of six months in prison for putting that sticker on his thing. He also uh, uh, faces a potential fines. The indictment says that if he is convicted of one or both of the felonies, prosecutors will ask that a judge order him to forfeit the gyrocopter. And he's currently now on home detention. He said, quote, we are looking at a case where there was no injury, no property damage. And the requirements as far as what the prosecution is asking for include years of jail time is ridiculous he said the penalties that they are demanding are not consistent with the damage they are not and you know there's such a thing as jury nullification usually i'm against that where you know juries look at it and say yes he did this or he or she did this crime but we think it was for a good reason or we think it's outrageous and we are going to vote not guilty uh, to nullify the law uh, i hope the jury if this goes to a trial i hope the jury does that you know, it gives him a fine at, at most, a couple hundred dollars, thousand dollars, whatever. He was trying to deliver a message. He hurt no one. The idea that the government is now trying to get up to nine and a half years in prison, to me, seems obscene. We'll keep an eye on that story. Finally, before we get out, an Arizona woman was sentenced to three and a half years in prison for running over her husband because he didn't vote for Republican Mitt Romney for president. That's right. Nicole Solomon of Mesa, Arizona, of course, pleaded guilty to assault charges for injuring her husband because he neglected to vote. He didn't vote in the 2012 presidential election. Investigators said that Solomon was angry that President Barack Obama had been reelected and became upset when she learned her husband hadn't voted against him. <laughs> uh <laughs> Her husband said it should have been a simple argument that should have been easy to resolve. Instead, she became so en enraged that she chased me around the parking lot with her Jeep and ran me over, nearly killing me. 
the woman's husband uh, said that Solomon, who was six months pregnant at the time, believed their family would face unspecified hardships if Obama served another term. Police said Solomon chased her husband through the parking lot, circled him as he tried to hide behind a light pole, then struck him and pinned him beneath the vehicle as he tried to run away. Her husband suffered a broken pelvis and other serious injuries in the incident. Final line of the story at Raw Story, the couple is now divorced. You don't say. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest today, science reporter Andrew Friedman of Mashable.com. We'll be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters and the Facebook at The Brad Blog and, of course, at Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>